1: Ken Pecos is our guest this week on Money Tales. Ken is one of those resilient people who hit financial bottom and catapulted back up again. Long story short, he got caught up in a legal battle over a franchise agreement. He knew he was in the right and kept the fight going for four long years. In the end, he lost half the lawsuit and faced financial tragedy when the judge awarded the other side attorney fees, just as Ken's own business was being hurt by the financial crisis. This meant Ken was on the hook for paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in a short time period, which nearly wiped him out. Ken's biggest lessons from that time are to watch your ego, don't always be focused on proving you're right, and keep communication lines open. Ken has been a good student of his life lessons. Today, he's the founder and group leader of the Ken Pacus Group. Ken has more than 30 years of successfully representing real estate sellers and buyers throughout San Diego County.
2: Here are three key money topics Ken hits on in this conversation. First, how perspectives about money can greatly change as you get older. Ken spent his early years in Pakistan where his family appeared to be wealthy because of the home they lived in and the household employees who supported them. Life was much more modest when they migrated to the U.S., but now Ken realizes the move afforded him vast opportunities. Second, how Ken has always viewed money as a path to freedom. and third. Before you decide to litigate anything, be sure to consider the cost involved, and if you have insurance that's protecting you, it can make a huge difference on how right you can be. We hope you share this episode with a friend, and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now onto our conversation with Ken Pekis. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast.
1: I'm Kami Doder.
2: And I'm Sandy Brager. Kami, I wanted to take this opportunity to congratulate you and your team on revising the Spirit website
1: earlier this year. It
2: is amazing. I love the new look and feel.
1: Thanks so much, Sandy. These things, they're a lot of work. You don't think it'll be that much work. And it's nerve wracking too, because our old website, we got a lot of compliments about it and now you're touching it. Why are you touching it? So I really appreciate you saying that. Especially love
2: how the Money Tales podcast page came out. So if listeners want to take a look, make sure you go to com slash podcasts
1: with an S-F-N to plural. As we think about money and businesses have to have money conversations all the time. And you were part of the conversation we had talking about making this investment because it is an investment. And it was really important. I appreciate the conversation we had. It's sure it's some about ROI. Some of it's about what do we need our digital front door to reflect. I really like that expression.
2: We want more and more people to come to the front door. So
1: I want more and be more. Be sure people to
2: come. check out That's Cammy's right. great work. It's a lot of fun. It provides a lot of really great information. And again, on the Money Tales page, you'll see featured episodes with all of our past guests, and it's a lot of fun to scroll through them. You can listen there too, or on your favorite podcast platform, as most listeners know.
1: Absolutely. And speaking of guests, let's welcome our guest for today, Ken pekas It is fantastic to be talking with you on the Money Tales podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Sandy and Cammie. Pleasure to be here today. Would you introduce yourself
1: and share a couple pivotal moments in your life that really impacted who you are today?
0: So my name is Ken Pekas. I've been a real estate agent for 34 years in San Diego, California. I'm the founder and owner of the Pecus Group. We're a diverse team of real estate agents brokered under the national umbrella of EXP Realty. We represent all segments of real estate, including my favorite, multifamily residential. So over the years, I've owned a number of non-real estate businesses, including a franchise for health clubs and a franchise on the opposite end, a national confectionery firm. (laughs) I also founded in 2005, a local real estate company in San Diego, and we grew to become 11 offices, more than 200 agents, and became the largest non-affiliated private real estate company in San Diego. So I departed that in 2019 and set on a new journey, which has led me to where I am today in business with my new company that I've been working on. On the personal side, I'm an immigrant. I immigrated with my family in 1971. I was about seven years old and we came from Pakistan. I was born in India, so I still absolutely tell people I'm Indian when people ask, what are you? My dad worked for the American Embassy in Pakistan, and there was this special opportunity for employees that allowed us to self-sponsor our way into the United States. And he applied for it, and he got our family approved within a year, which normally, if you want to immigrate to the United States, it could take seven to 10 years to get that process through. I was really, really fortunate that my father was so insightful there. They sold everything that they had back in Pakistan, bought tickets, packed up their three kids, and put us on a 747, which was cool. Uh, back in 71. And we ended up here in San Diego. Pretty excited about just the fact that I was gifted this ability to come to the United States at a very young age. I ended up growing up in a beautiful beachside community called Coronado, California. It's an affluent community, but going back to a little bit to what you were saying about what influenced you on money, I always considered myself the poor kid there (laughs) because growing up in Coronado, you you saw all your friends Everything around, and everybody seemed to have money. And when my mom and dad came over here, they, although they finished secondary school in Pakistan and India, they were not college-degreed. So they went out and got jobs. They're from the old generation in that they kept everything, all papers. So we were able to go back, my sister and I, and see all their records. We found their first paychecks. My mom made $2.45 an hour, and my dad made $3.50 an hour. Wow. We even found their first bank statements because, of course, being an immigrant, my dad would only agree to banking at bank of america <laughs> so good naming good branding, good branding. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally great branding especially for immigrants just a thousand dollars which in retrospect okay a thousand dollars went a lot farther then but that's all the money they had in the world that they came to the united states without jobs or degrees they raised us really well They eventually bought a house in Coronado. They fed us. We've had a beautiful childhood. I just always thought we had a poor childhood because everybody else, all the other kids had either new bikes or new cars, or they lived in these massive houses. And so, you know, from a little kid's perspective, it's very distorted what you have until you yourself go out in the world. As a kid, starting maybe sixth grade, seventh grade, I just started getting jobs. I started mowing yards. I started cutting, pulling weeds, whatever, anything to get money. And then I had some fun money.
1: Were you talking to your parents about this or was this just you going off and being the entrepreneur and capitalist?
0: It's definitely me going off and being the capitalist because I went to a Catholic school. And so if you know anything about parochial schools, you're always selling or doing something to raise money. And with that selling or doing something to raise money, and I was on Boy Scouts, I always wanted to sell. I absolutely had to win all the time. And if you won, you got prizes. So whether it was earning money or getting the prizes for what you won, it was some way to earn. And that just continued all the way until eighth grade when I got my first real job. When I got my first real job, I was the packaging clerk for a little store in Coronado, Then I started getting money every single week. And then that went into high school and I never didn't work in high school. And the long and the short of all of that is, is it allowed me to have money that gave me freedom to, if I wanted to go hang out with my friends, I could do whatever I wanted. If I wanted to join a sports team and I needed sports equipment, I had the money and I also was able to buy my own clothes. Although my mom and dad never asked me to do that, I could tell it was a big relief and a proud moment for them too. And probably for you, too. It was totally great for me. It sounds like you
2: were becoming financially independent as a pretty young person, not really reliant on your
0: parents for all things. I think in that respect, I was financially independent as a high school student might go. But yeah, put me out on the street. I didn't leave home at 13 or 15 or whatever. The reality of life, I needed my mom and dad. I needed the shelter. I needed the loving. I needed all of that. I'm very needy that way.
2: Ken, when you were making these purchases, did your parents ever have any advice for you on how you were spending your money or did they just let you be?
0: My parents were absolutely flexible with me to do what I wanted to do. They never stopped me, but they did have one big piece of advice and I didn't heed it. And that was probably the biggest lesson I learned as an eighth grader. Before I got my real job, I was working and I spent all, I can't tell you, months and months at $3 and $6 saving money, doing yards and everything. And I saved $75 and I went and I bought the coolest Huffy 10-speed bike. (laughs) With the big seat? (laughs) Well, it was a 10-speeder, so it was really sharp. With the wrap handlebars? And I was so proud of that because when I came up to school, everybody was like, wow, look at your bike. I thought you were the poor kid. And that's what I was thinking. But what my mom and dad kept telling me you have to protect it, you have to lock it, you have to put it inside the house. And I just didn't listen. And one night I left it very early on, maybe two months or three months after I bought it on our front porch. And that morning the bike was gone.
2: Oh, that's a that tough is awful. lesson.
0: I was crying. I was so devastated. My mom, she never said, I told you so. Never, ever. They never said, I told you so. It was a awful, but a great lesson to learn that early in life about when you spend money and you do something, how to protect it. I think that's the biggest lesson that my parents did. After that, they were just really very very supportive of everything I did, because I worked every weekend, I worked every holiday through high school, 4th of July, Christmas, Thanksgiving, I had to give up a lot. Then I wanted that freedom. I wanted that freedom to be able to spend money or do whatever.
1: I'm curious, when you came to the US, you're young. Were you noticing the differences at that time between the US and Pakistan? And how money was handled and valued?
0: The part I didn't tell you is where we were in Pakistan, my mom and dad had very respected jobs. My dad was a senior, although local, person at the U.S. Embassy, and my mother was an um, a executive secretary for the international firm Intercontinental Hotels, and she was really highly respected in her job. In Pakistan, when I left, we had actually a really nice home from my memory. It was very big, and we had a maid, we had a gardener, we had a cook, and we had a guard. When we came to the United States, all that changed. My mom had to cook. First, they were always taking the bus to get to their jobs, but then after that, when my dad put the money together to buy a little car, he had to take her to work first, and he dropped, and that's through the time that they retired. She never learned to drive. Once again, it's a little kid. I was like, wow, we came down in class. But as I grew up older, I realized there is a different feel here. And in Pakistan, we called them servants. You immediately start to learn the difference when you're here about how you treat people and who they are and where they are in life. So it's a continuous education process.
2: You really brought to life this idea of feeling poor, you got here, not only relative to the neighbors in your new neighborhood, but relative to your old lifestyle. I'm curious, as you got older and became an adult, how are you thinking about money? Was it still the reward for working hard or did that change at
0: some point? I think it finally started to click in college. So I went to Texas a and I was going to major in international business or real estate but then I was influenced by my family, or you can call it what it really was, pressured, strong-armed by my family to major in electrical engineering, because that's what it, us Indians do. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I got a BSWE degree from Texas A&M. I will say that I pretty much hated every moment of that engineering part, but I was also determined not to be in college too long, so I didn't change majors. So I just went through it and got the degree. And when I was in college, I met way more demographic. My demographics of people, even though it was college, opened up to kids coming from different economics. And that helped. And also when I was a high school senior, I finally made the starting lineup for our tennis team. And what that allowed us to do was to go to other schools in San Diego. The Metro division, which effectively was all of the central and south San Diego schools. When I started to go to those schools and I started to see their facilities and the courts and driving the neighborhoods, I go, "Oh, maybe I am growing up a little more in a princess lifestyle than I think." That's when it started opening up. But to be direct on your question, absolutely, I've never seen money as anything more than my path to freedom.
2: You're studying electrical engineering. You wanted to study real estate. You've had a 34-year career in real estate. How did you make that pivot?
0: (laughs) Well, I use mom and dad's words. They said, you can get your engineering degree, and when you come out, you can get a real estate license and sell real estate on the side. That's exactly what I did. When I came out, I got an electrical engineering job. In 1989, I got my real estate license and started to learn the trade while I was working as being an engineer. I worked both jobs almost full-time until 1994, and then one fateful day in 1994, my then-supervisor gave me a letter back that she had redlined one too many (laughs) redlines, and I had the dominant division there. I was bringing in the vast majority of the money there, and in my view, she was just trying to exert authority over the person that appeared to be the breadwinner, so to speak, because I was bringing in a ton of work for our division. And I just quit that day. I gave her the red line back. I said, here's my notice. That's it. That that was not a very intelligent decision on my part. Why is that?
1: You got two careers going at the same time.
0: Yeah, but I also had two levels of spending opportunities going at the same time.
1: (laughs) You enjoy your life, Ken. This is what I'm understanding.
0: I did. I was not thinking that I was going to quit that day. If you think you're going to quit that day, maybe you plan out ahead. You put money aside, you be prepared. (laughs) I hadn't done that.
1: Okay. So this is a good time to ask these questions. What's going on in your life at this point? It sounds like you're not doing any budgeting or planning for those rainy days or some sort
0: of reserve fund, or were you? At that point, I had bought a house and had saddled myself with a very big, in that time period, mortgage payment for myself. In San Diego, we were in approximately the worst recession in my 34 years of real estate I've ever seen. So the 2008 to 11 Great Recession was nothing like what San Diego experienced locally and regionally between 92 and 95. That was way worse. Timing wasn't brilliant, but it's like that. You throw the kid into the water and will they swim or you... On it. That's what happened. Here's a perfect example. A plane takes off on an aircraft carrier, a jet, and we've all seen that jet take off. And if we look at a direct on, we suddenly lose sight of that jet because it seems to fall off the aircraft carrier. And then in about three seconds, we suddenly see it clear the carrier again and go way up in the sky. So that's kind of the way it happened. I almost ocean ditched after that takeoff, but it cleared out. Then the following year, I ended up being number one in my real estate company at that time. But it took seven months to almost hit bottom.
2: And tell us what that was like, almost hitting bottom.
0: Well, I didn't know what hitting bottom was because decades later, I actually did hit bottom. And then I saw what it was like. That was actually just perfectly fine. So <laughs> it, it felt it, like you were hitting bottom. It felt like I was hitting bottom. Because you just bottom. weren't prepared. Exactly. You made a rash
2: decision. You had to deal with it and get out of that pickle.
0: Exactly. It's part of the growth, I think, in my own life and the growth and what I try to help others with now is to rethink a little more planning, a little more staging, how you're going to move forward before necessarily being an impulsive person and making those decisions. I haven't had a hard time making decisions. What I've had a hard time is being patient making those decisions.
2: Yeah, that can make a huge difference. So Ken, tell us about actually bottoming.
0: (laughs) What was that like? (laughs) Remember when I said I owned that ill-fated confectionery?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Along with your fitness, you're hitting both sides of the barbell. Boom, yeah. And they were at the same time. I mean, they overlapped a little bit. That national franchise was because I bought it I hate to say this, but I effectively was trying to buy a job for my spouse. So I bought a franchise he was supposed to run and do everything for because that's his passion is chocolate and creating different things and all that sort of stuff. I was not supposed to be a part of it in any way. But what I had to do was I had to sign on the franchise agreement. I had to effectively guarantee the franchise agreement. Without going into the gory details, it ended very tragically <laughs> as it didn't work out between him and the franchise operators. It ended in litigation. It ended in me getting involved with that because I'm the one that they're going to sue because I'm the one with the assets, all that sort of stuff. Four years of litigation that we had to fight in a court out of state. So we had to fight it in their venue of choice. Extremely, extremely expensive ordeal, and at that time I had already launched that company I told you about that turned out to be the largest company in San Diego. However, we too were in the great recession; was hard to keep that company afloat. Also, and ultimately, we lost half of that lawsuit. The judge wrongly said, "I'm going to award them their attorney fees." Well, those attorney fees were just upwards of eight hundred thousand dollars plus I had already spent all the money on my attorney fees were just under 500,000 and I paid for all that in cash and all of a sudden with the company underwater and going down fast in the great recession of 2008 and 9 and 10 that's when I hit bottom
2: holy wow man oh man wow
0: it was so, a very tough time
2: thank you for sharing that Ken I'm curious, looking back on it now, what were the lessons that came out of that what sounds like awful experience?
0: The first lesson is what we did right. And what I did right was I continued to always have open communication with anybody I came in contact with and having very direct and open, loving communication with my spouse because the world around me wanted to blame him for everything. It wasn't him. That was his thing, but I had to recognize that it was all my fault because at any point I could have chosen to say, I'm not going to pursue this. At any point I could have chosen to maybe do a settlement. At any point I could have done that. So the biggest lesson is that You cannot let your ego get involved in the process of trying to be right. You cannot do that because you don't know how it's going to turn out. From a business perspective, you have to be more intelligent and look at this situation from a business perspective. Try as much as you can to take emotion out of it. Get advice from people that are not emotionally tied to you and what's going on and then listen. Not only get that advice, but then get listened. Because along the way, along those four years of litigation, I did have advice. And if I had subdued my ego, and if I had listened to some of the advice, I would have lost money. I might have lost a couple hundred thousand at that point or whatever, but I could have recovered from it much, much faster, and it would have been a much better lesson. So yeah, that's probably the biggest thing I learned, ego and keep talking.
1: Those are such important messages. And I think the ego part is the hard part because I think when you're on the other side and you're just assuming you're right, it's hard to let go and absorb some losses. In hindsight, it sounds like you wish you did.
0: I do. The judge said that we were right about our claims. And he said, well, actually, on page 76, paragraph two, now the circular was 250 pages. On page, Line three, they make a statement there that you can't rely on what they're saying. And so since they said that somewhere in that circular, technically it wasn't fraud. And so it couldn't have been fraud in the inducement. And so even though you proved your case that they did say this and all of this stuff came out, sorry, you can't pursue it. So it was a technical thing.
2: Oh, Ken, life is unfair. Life is Mm -hmm. so unfair. What an amazing lesson for you. And I really want to highlight what you were saying about getting objective advice that's so important in any matter related to money. It's so hard for us as individuals to separate that emotion and our own passion towards something from the dollar implication of whatever it is trying to decide about whether it's something good or something like a lawsuit where it can be tricky.
0: Well, we all think when it comes our time to do it, that we can handle it better than when we see other people doing it. Because it's that whole armchair quarterback or the coach on the sideline or whatever, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. It's so much easier to see other people's lives than our own as it's happening. And one other really big thing I did discover with this, and I've discovered this all along the way and I use it, is the part that wrecks you in times like this is the litigation part, the time that you're fighting things, because you have to pay those checks. The key on all of this is insurance on certain levels. And from a money standpoint, sometimes people don't want to pay for insurance. And even though I had extensive policies at that time, I had umbrellas, whatever, I didn't look close enough and I didn't have the right riders. So my dispute with the franchisor and what happened was not covered under my insurance. As you look forward and as you look forward to, if you're going to litigate something, I just encourage everybody to think about the cost of the litigation. And if you have insurance that's protecting you, it makes a big, big difference on how right you can be.
1: That's a really important message. Insurance is one of those that because it's costly up front until you need it sometimes hard to invest in. That's a great money lesson from your experiences. I'd love to know, you're talking money every day. You're a real estate broker, you're a businessman. Real estate is a money business. What are some of the key lessons that you would hope listeners could learn from you?
0: You're absolutely correct. I have conversations almost two, three times a week, whether it's new clients, whether it's the agents that work on my team, because I've grown businesses, I've grown a lot of agents that have become very, very successful. I have a lot of friends and family that have reached out personally, because a lot of them are privy to the fact that I've had a lot of these ups and downs and at this stage in my life on the surface, and in reality, it seems very up. So how do you manage this stuff? those money conversations come back to my whole philosophy now on just money in general. And that is income minus expenses equals profit. So it doesn't matter what we're doing. It doesn't matter what we're doing, whether we're talking about our life, whether we're talking about vacations, whether we're talking about just running our house, whether we're talking about buying investment property or anything, you got to come back on the side of profit. So as simple as we've heard it many, many times, spend less than you take in as revenue. That is very difficult. And that's very difficult for people. But just for an example, at the low point of low point, my credit score was 475 on a FICO score, right? At the bottom of that, I had all the stuff. I literally emerged from that low point. I went through a full-on Chapter 11 liquidation bankruptcy, and I had to emerge from all that I just went in and I applied for a quick little home equity on something I'm doing for my house and he just sent me back my credit score and my credit score was 835. And so with a perfect credit score of 850, you can see there's a philosophy that plays into how you can do that. It's being sensible about what you're spending. I'm not value shopper other people are. I don't clip coupons I shop whether or not this makes sense for me right now. If whatever it is makes sense for me right now, then that's step one. And then the next step is, do I have that money to pay that and not mess up whatever else I'm doing in life? And if the answer is yes, then I buy it, whatever it is. If the answer is no, I said, okay, not now. We'll wait until I'm ready.
1: I really appreciate the simplicity of finance. can feel so complex. You've got to know some esoteric equations to be financially literate and strong. Income minus expenses equals profits. There's some fundamentals that just keep repeating those. You got the most of it to really
0: succeed. Everybody thinks we have five real estate offices, you have this, you have that. My God, you're probably jumping off of the bed into a pile of cash because the bankruptcy and all that stuff that went on, nobody knew about it. I had to keep that from everybody. I didn't want to instill fear or destabilize the company. But the bottom line is everybody that worked for me had hundreds of thousands of dollars more than I did in value because I owed so much and I had no cash. So I had to come from that whole position and then try to counsel people who were telling me, well, you just don't understand how it is to not have anything. Oh, Ken, that's hard. That was maybe one of the hardest things.
2: Yeah.
0: How'd you do that? It was tennis. That's how I did it. One of the first things I did after I filed, I went and joined a tennis club. See what is great about the United States of America? You can go and do that. And I'm like, how can you join a private tennis club when you have no money? Here's how you do it. You have debit cards now that have Visa on it. When I went to the tennis club, I gave my debit card so that they could charge. It was $80 a month. And I said, I can find the $80 a month to play, to do this. And every single time I had some trouble, I just went and played tennis because that was my sport in high school. I could just ignore and forget everything. And so that's what I did. It was tennis. My husband, Tommy, always acknowledges that it was probably tennis that saved our marriage and our relationship. It was tennis that saved our life. It allowed me to clear my brain constantly.
2: Great learning in that too, Ken.
0: It was, (laughs) once again, not complicated.
2: You found a way to channel your energy, to clear your mind and remain persistent and get yourself into a much better financial position than you were in at that moment.
0: Absolutely. In the years since, I've been able to reestablish everything I ever wanted. And even during the time that I was in a difficult financial strait, One of my passions in life is traveling. And even at that time, I never stopped traveling because I discovered one thing that they don't do during bankruptcy is that they don't take your airline miles away. I was still able to travel because we had (laughs) airline miles left. I love all these bankruptcy hacks that you found. You had assets, just a different form of assets. There you go. It was this amazing thing. There is nobody now that is in any worse financial situation that they cannot recover from. Because the way the United States is set up, you have a chance to start up again. And when I exited bankruptcy, I exited bankruptcy with 400000 of debt that I did not discharge. These debts were all personal loans or commitments I did not feel good about discharging, including my attorneys, everything like that what I decided to do is pay them all back. And I remember three months after the formal discharge, but I sent all of them letters and said, I want you to know that I'm going to pay you back everything. But I also want you to know that you're going to see me in the next few years traveling or taking trips or doing things. And I don't want you to be disgruntled that I'm spending money and I'm not paying you back more because those trips and that time off is what's going to allow me to pay you back faster because I know how my brain works. And if you're just patient with me, I will pay you back everything. I was able to make good on all of those debts within three and a half years and then still move forward. So it's expenses, revenue minus expenses equals what's left.
1: What's profits, yep.
2: What great money conversations you are having at that time to be so forthright. Ken, tell us what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with?
0: The next money conversation is probably going to be with some of my agents that work with me in my office. Starting this new company, I have 12 new agents and they have to understand how to manage their life while they're trying to build a business that doesn't pay them a paycheck and only takes money from them until they close a deal.
1: It's great. You're paying it forward. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and what a journey. You have me on the edge of my seat. If listeners want to find you, what's the best place to find
0: you? Best place to find me is you can call me. My number is everywhere. So my mobile number is 619-977-8419. And then my email is Ken at kenpacus.com My company website for my the Pacus group is www.kenpecus.com.
1: Great. Thank you again, Ken. This has been a really amazing conversation you shared so much money wisdom.
0: Absolutely. My pleasure. I appreciate you having me on.
1: Thanks for listening to the Money Tales Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to Asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue, or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.